I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. My guest today spends his time trying to figure out what makes us do and not do what we intend to do. Todd Rogers is a behavioral scientist and professor of public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. He studies the gap between intention and one's likelihood to act on their intention. Specifically, his work is focused in the areas of family engagement to support student success and amplifying and improving democracy. He is the co-founder of two social enterprises, the Analyst Institute and In Class Today. He received a PhD jointly from Harvard's Department of Psychology and Harvard Business School and received his bachelor's from Williams College, majoring in both religion and psychology. Good morning, Todd. Good morning, Jill. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Uh, so I was watching you last night in a presentation that you gave, I was watching online. Um, you described the work that you do as the study of the gap between intentions and actions. Can you explain a little bit about what that means? Sure. The You may not relate to this, but I often intend to do virtuous things mm. like this morning, actually, I was trying to do intermittent fasting, you know, where you don't <laughs> you eat. You were trying for, to do it this morning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I, I told my children about it this morning. Yeah. Uh, I said, so you I'm were not, not, you were not eating. I'm not, it, it was the absence of action. Yes. I actually told them I would not be eating yes. until lunch. Yes. But as soon as I got back to the house, I stuffed my face with breakfast <laughs> and then the shame and it just kept going. We, we often intend to do things. Yep that we don't end up following through on. Mm. But it turns out that most of the things that fall into that gap yeah. are virtuous things, things that we think people should be doing and that we know we should be doing. Huh, okay. So whether it's voting or exercising or watching a documentary instead of an action movie, right. going to bed early, right? Uh, taking, telling our kids not to use their phones when it's so much easier to just say that's fine. Yeah. Uh, those are the kinds of things where we have intentions and we don't follow through on them. And so behavioral science digs into why that is. Yeah, behavioral science helps to figure out what are the drivers of behavior mm -hmm. and the branch of it that I go down is how do we use what we've learned about the drivers of behavior to help people follow through on their virtuous intentions and mm -hmm. also just help people do things that they and we agree are good for them. So how did you end up down this path? Uh, so should we go all the way back to my family growing up? And if my you mom? want to. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if she was really the trigger for you. Well, how many listeners do you have? Uh, I, uh, we'll, we'll just say, I, so I'm, I've always been interested in uh, human behavior and changing behavior. Yeah. I was kind of a meathead in college mm -hmm. until I wasn't mm -hmm. uh, mm. and got involved in student government. And, and yeah. I, when I was, when I was student body president as a religion major, I, uh, I always thought it was hilarious and absurd that the board of trustees would ask me, what does the student body think? And I only know my 10 friends. Right. Uh, and so I, I left that and decided I want to be a political pollster yeah. okay. to understand how, behavior and attitudes are assessed and changed. And then midway through doing that, I was a political pollster for a couple of years. I realized there was a whole science of behavior change that I had not known about and that was definitely not being used. Okay. Oh, so meaning you discovered that one can actually influence what someone else 
does. We can help people follow through on their virtuous intentions. We can help people <laughs> follow through on their virtuous intentions. Uh, okay. Why is it no problem for humans to follow through on their non-virtuous intentions? It's it's interesting. So the the re when we have a virtuous intention, let's let's call it something we, we call it a should. Yeah. We know that we should do it, but we don't really want to. Yeah. There is some alternative that we'd rather do. Yeah. And in the future, we think we're gonna do the virtuous thing. But then when the future becomes the present, we think in the future we're gonna do the virtuous thing. Interesting. And so I'll go to the gym tomorrow. Okay. Yeah, I actually I will intermittent fast tomorrow. Right. right. I you I, I believe that you will. Who what will make you or one, just to kind of play this out, actually intermittent fast? I I actually I try to tell my kids. And then I try to feel shame if I fail, but I've failed enough times that I no longer feel shame. About <laughs> it. But that actually is a strategy that I use. So one, okay. one is some kind of accountability, but the, the better one yeah. is to actually make it structurally difficult. And this is one of the most powerful things in behavioral science. Uh, it's, it maybe is too obvious to sound deep, but it really is, yeah. which is that when you make it difficult to do things, people are less likely to do them. When you make it easier to do things, people are more likely to do them. Yeah, that's, yeah. So the best that's strategy that I actually have yeah. is uh, to not go home and go straight to my office. Right. Or yeah, empty just, all your cabinets. And when I'm at home, yeah. I try to get out of the kitchen immediately. When I, I proactively, right. I in fact tried, it's like a, um, like a black hole and there's uh, an event horizon. Yeah. Where I actually went as soon as I walked into the house today. Yeah. I thought to myself, I better go up the stairs now. But instead I took my jacket off. I put the bag down. Yeah. And then, so and then is that why, like these notions, like these group, um, you know, the people will diet together or you know go on juicing fast together? Are those more productive than an individual trying to do it on their own? They they tend. I mean, I don't know the research on this very yeah. well, but I know that being held accountable makes yeah. people more likely to do stuff. The other uh, the other the other thing that is interesting in this front, it sounds a lot like self control what we're talking about, but I'm. Right now, for me, not following through, it is self-control. Right. Uh, and one of the interesting lines of research on this that has really been a breakthrough in the last five years, which, again, will be obvious to people who have not been mired in how do we build self-control, yeah. is that people who appear to be the most self-controlled are not better at resisting temptation. Huh. So faced with a chocolate chip cookie, yes. you being very self-controlled and me not at all, we are both equally likely to give in if we both want chocolate chip cookies. Yes, but what people who really appear to be really self-controlled do is they just avoid being in those situations. Oh, that's so like I, I've actually try to work. I've moved my working space to like the closet in the third floor. So that it's not <laughs> on the first floor where the kitchen is. Right. Because like I, like I look out the window and if I'm working at the kitchen table, yeah. that turns into me going. Turning around and looking into the cabinet. Yeah. So, yeah. okay. So researchers in your world and, and folks who are really focused on the science of what makes us do move from intention to action, talk about nudges. And can, can you explain what a nudge is exactly? Sure. The, I, I actually, I might not totally predictably, I'm going to give you too long an answer to a short question. That's okay. Uh, as long as it's interesting. I think it is. <laughs> You guys can cut it if it's not. Uh, fast forward 45 seconds from now, listeners. Right. The, um, so Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky in the 70s started this field called behavioral economics. Okay. Uh, and it was basically documenting descriptively the way humans make decisions. Right. Not 
not assuming that they're rational yep. and just looking at how they actually do make choices. Yep. I feel like I read a book about this. You've read a few, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Danny Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in economics yes. as a psychologist. He right. wrote a book called Thinking Fast and yes. Slow. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Um, and concurrent with that, there was a whole program of research that they and others did trying to help people avoid the systematic biases we make. Not bias like discrimination, like like a tendency to choose certain things. Huh. And over the course of 30 years, the conclusion was that we really can't get rid of them. Uh, that this is just the way the brain is hardwired. And so m maybe there, uh, no one is giving up, but basically we have not found a way to de-bias the mind. So is there, is there a good historical, biological, environmental reason for that? I mean, there are lots, yes, the easiest story is that like we have limited cognitive ability. Yeah. We have limited attention. Uh-huh. Uh, we have limited bandwidth. And that we optimize on that using shortcuts. And those shortcuts uh, tend to be really good. Look at look at modern civilization. Right. Uh, but they also have systematic errors uh, or deviations from what would be best. So so in two so after thirty years of that, Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein wrote a book called Nudge. Yeah. And Cass is a colleague of mine at Harvard, and he is a like one of the great legal scholars who on the side also happens to be one of the great behavioral economists. Oh, interesting. Um, this is a great book, by the way. Yeah. Nudge. It was really, I mean, really transformed our field. And, um, and Thaler is one of the founders of behavioral economics, won a Nobel prize last year in economics. Mm. And their basic argument was we should help people make better choices. But in mm -hmm. the meantime, and in parallel, we should also just structure the environment so that we can help people make better choices. And they hmm. call it choice architecture. Okay. So the, the, is this like Bloomberg posting calorie counts next to, on menu boards? Uh, I, I think that the spirit of that, although I think the evidence for posting calories is, is it's not actually very the, strong. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was the opposite. Is that right? People bought things that had the most calories in them because they oh, yeah. thought it was more valuable. Oh, I love that. Yeah, <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. Uh, no, so like the classic example of a nudge, the best. Yeah. Uh, is shifting defaults. And so I'll give us, since we're, you and I both care about education, I'll give the example. I, I did this project where Boston Public Schools and every other school district that I work with, I don't work with BPS, um, has a parent portal mm -hmm. where teachers post grades, homeworks, things like that. Right. Parents have to get a password, mm -hmm. then they have to log in, mm -hmm. and then they have to actively find the information they want. Yes, and it's so frustrating. I, yes, <laughs> the, the, exactly. As a parent, I'm speaking as a parent right e now. Exactly, yes. right. <laughs> well, I'll speak as an advocate. I, I think it's also it. frustrating. Yes. Um, so the uh, friend of mine, uh, Peter Bergman, who's a professor at Columbia, did this really simple project where he went into this grade book in LA yeah. and texted parents automatically whenever their, parent, whenever their kid oh. didn't turn in homework or grade fell below passing. And what he found was that it was really powerful in increasing GPA, cor reducing course failure, and increasing standardized test scores. That's interesting. He then replicated it in two other large cities. I replicated it throughout the UK with the prime minister's office. Mm -hmm. And then he and I replicated it in Washington, D.C. public schools. Huh. And, and the thing that, that, uh, that, we, that we did in D.C. was we texted parents and said, if you'd like to enroll in this program, text start. 11% of parents signed up. Okay. Parents are the best performing kids. So it's 
right. important to keep them informed. They're right. not the ones I'm most concerned about. So the default there mm. is you're not getting this if you do nothing. Right. So we added another condition where we said, you're going to get this tech stop if you don't want it. So just shifted the default. Yeah. And shifting the default meant if you did nothing, yeah. you're going to get it. Right. And so 95% of parents stayed enrolled. Oh, interesting. And so then we look through the year and we yeah. have a control group and we have other conditions too. And you look through the, the semester and the kids in the automatically getting it group, mm -hmm. the, what we call opt out, yeah, they perform substantially better GPA. One in four kids doesn't fail a class they would have failed otherwise compared to the control group. Uh, wow. and, and the 11% group, the opt in has no effect. They're the parents of the best performing kids who right. are already the most informed. They're already tiger momming. Um, and my favorite part of this, which I think is really relevant to the stuff that you in the other episodes and your work are interested in, uh, we then do a survey that summer of all the families. Yeah. And remember the parents of the automatically enrolled group yeah. have been getting a ton more information than any other group. Right. They are more likely than controlled to say, we want more information than we've been getting. Oh my gosh, because because most parents, right? There's other research that shows that most parents are living under the fallacy that their students are performing at or above grade level. And so it, is it suggesting that once they're kind of consistently told that that's not the case, they actually are turning on their parenting skills, which they all have. They just kind of were operating against something that wasn't true. That I, I hadn't thought of it through that lens, but that, that sounds, I, I've thought about it through the same way you're talking about. We've, we've activated yeah. this demand parent. Yeah. Uh, and because most parents, right? Like parents want their kids to be successful. Yeah. I, the way I've read it is much more cynical about districts, which yeah. is parents are not used to getting anything useful. Well, totally. And so when you give them useful information, the evidence is they act on it, they improve student success. Yeah. And then downstream, they want even more. They didn't know there was this whole trove of useful information they could be getting. So how does that make, uh, when you talk to districts about that, are districts excited? I mean, cause it does mean, I mean, how do they, how do they look at parents generally? Do they look at them as potential partners? Cause this would, this work would show that they are potential partners. If you give them certain information, you motivate them. It kind of, it's not real. I don't know. I don't know if it causes more interaction between parents and, and districts and they don't want that. But how, I mean, what's, what's kind of the general take from districts? Um, so I work with dozens of districts around the country uh, and the districts I work with are selected for, I think for actually wanting to empower and mobilize families. Yeah, that's awesome. But there is a tension. The evidence is mounting that, that, investing and informing parents with useful information mm. to help their kids is easily the most cost-effective way to improve student success because yeah. kids spend 75% of their waking hours outside of school. Parents basically never hear from the school right. in a useful way. They hear these generic. Right. So given that, uh, you would think that that would lead to, if we want to improve student success, yeah. find ways to invest in parents. Yeah. But one of the consequences that you touched on yeah. is that it means parents are more engaged. Parents are engaged. And, and then you have a whole other customer base that's not a set of students. It's it's hard. It, it, being sympathetic to teachers, yeah. they have a job for yeah. the eight hours or seven yeah. and a half hours they have a job. And they have a course load that reflects that and prep work and whatever. And now when you activate parents, like you said, there's another customer base. It may be outrageously effective in increasing student success, but yeah. their, their current time budget doesn't right. allocate for it. And so 
I, I have not seen this unfold explicitly. I'm not blaming any district. Yeah, I'm not yeah. describing a specific district. But one could imagine a world where teachers are like, my job is this seven and a half hours with sure. these kids. Sure. And the more parents who ask me questions, the more of a tax that is. Right. And I don't, my job is here with right. these kids. I mean, you really have to kind of rethink teacher incentives. Is, yeah. Right. If, if you're going to start enabling parents with real data. And there, there is mounting evidence. And literally, the, you've encountered this where um, education research has not been particularly interventional. Right. And it has not been very good at causality right. until the last 10 years or so. Uh, and in the last 10 years, there has been this mounting body of evidence that it's weirdly cost effective to, imp to empower parents on improving student outcomes. Right. And it's been really hard in the classroom because basically we administer seven and a half hours of intervention to kids every day. Yeah. We communicate to parents twice a year. Yeah. And so like the, the right. there's like incredibly diminishing marginal returns to right. additional investment on kids, outrageously high marginal returns to investing in parents. Yeah. Um, but talk, talk to me about how, so because a lot of your work is around family engagement for student success. And, and why, why is it, why is it that the family is so important as opposed to just kind of nudging students directly? The way that I like to think about it, I know that this is uh, consistent with the way you're describing it. I think of it as an asset-based view of families. Yep. My friend and mentor Karen Mapp at the Ed School has broadened the way I think about things and really opened me to this. There's this implicit deficit-based view of families, which is that the families of the lowest performing kids, they're the problem. Right and we need to circumvent them right. to help the kids. And, and the asset-based view is no matter what capacity or time families have to support kids and the shared goal of their kids' success, right. just making them more productive in helping their kids is, so it doesn't matter where they start, yeah. we can help them be more effective assets yeah. uh, in the service of the shared goal. Uh, and so this sort of asset-based view is really the, 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 the dominating lens. And, and given that, then the challenge for districts and for schools is, well, what do we want parents to do? Right. And it turns out that's not super clear. But it, it also kind of was suggest in your research that it doesn't, we don't necessarily need to know what we want parents to do because parents know what to do inherently because the scores go up. Well, the, the domains where the scores go up. Yeah are where we give them incredibly clear instructions on what we need help with. Oh, you do? So you say, yes. so-and-so failed a test, here's how to react. Yeah, uh, so okay. not, not only did Todd, Todd fail a test, Todd didn't turn in his homework today. Yeah. Please get him to do it tonight. Okay. So very, very concrete. Uh, and I, I have, Roland Fryer has this paper where he pays kids to do better in school. And half the kids he pays them for performance, half the kids he pays them for reading books. Okay. And you could think of reading books as an input into academic performance, but not the goal itself. Right. And he finds that paying kids to perform better has no effect. Yep. But paying them to read books affects grades. Yes. And performance. Uh, and the what, like the insight that I take out of that is we need to be thinking about what is the production function right. for increased performance. Right. And... Uh, when we know what the clear production function is, like mm -hmm. kids got to turn in their homework, kids got to study for a test, mm -hmm. parent needs to turn on because the kid just went from passing to failing a mm -hmm. class, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. telling parents that we need this specific action, super productive. Uh, but there are a lot of behaviors for which we, 
it's not clear to me what the production function is, let alone that like every parent is going to know, especially alienate marginalized parents are going to know what the production function is. So for example, um, your kid isn't doing as well as their classmates yeah. on grades. I think that, that would increase motivation, but then that motivation would get translated into incredibly idiosyncratic production functions. Like, what is it I'm supposed to do? I'm just right. more motivated. I'm going to yell right. at my kid. I'm right. going to turn the TV off. Right. I'm going right. to, uh, I don't know what the thing is. Yeah, that's and, right. You and have to so, break it all down. But it, unless you trust that, that, mm-hmm. that everybody's production, everybody's beliefs about what, what the inputs are for good grades. And well, it depends better. on why the grades started going badly though, right? Like, is it actually a social, social emotional issue or is it that you just stopped studying because you decided video games were more important? Like who knows, right? But through one lens, like parents would be the best equipped to know Absolutely, that. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, it's, so, it's, so is the action though, so like help us understand why? I, I maybe yeah. I, so my, my MO and I, and is it's hard to take productive feedback from parents and then mm-hmm. deliver it to teachers in mm-hmm. a way that they'll consume and use mm-hmm. without becoming a burden and tax on everybody. Yeah. And well, so, you have, right. The system has to shift. The incentives exactly. have to shift. Yeah. The purpose of, of the teacher has to shift. The goals of the institution have to shift. Yeah. So uh, I just, but, but you would think that they would given that there's now the scientifically driven tool that helps them get right in front of one of the key stakeholders. The intervention I just described. Yeah. Well, can I dive into that? Yeah, yeah, go. So the that intervention requires that all teachers use the same grade book and that they keep it up to date. Okay. Yeah. And for anyone involved in education, they know that that is like a unicorn. Yeah, it's a scatter shot. Uh, and so that intervention, if you can get teachers to all use the same grade book and all keep it up to date, mm. the effects are giant of mm. automatically pushing that out to parents. Right. So that has now been replicated in. I think five or six randomized experiments involving probably approaching a thousand schools. Right. Uh, none of them have ever continued doing it. Because who rebels on that in that case? But the teachers could rebel if you're not, because you got to change everything. You can't just change one thing. Yeah. Each, each, each yeah. rebellion has its own yeah. story. Right. But, you know, in our revisionist history, we can say that it's because. Yeah. Well, I, I think there are at least two reasons. One is because it's a pain. Yeah to get teachers to all do the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And principals have a million, you know, always 25 top priorities. And this can't be, like, it's just hard to make this continue to be another one. No, for sure. But if you're going to do, like, if you're going to shift the paradigm, Yes. Then you have to shift the paradigm, like comprehensively, everyone kind of, you, you need to know that here's where we are, here's where we're going, and here's the, here's the ways in which you, your role is going to change over the next year or two years in order to adjust to the new paradigm. Yeah, and so what are it's nudges? The same thing as school food, actually, right? Like it didn't change overnight; it's changing over four years. Yeah, I mean, and Here, and, and it's a level perhaps. of ambition yeah. that that I that I don't I have a hard time wrapping my brain around. Like I, the system change. Yeah. So when you think about yes. nudges, when we talk about what nudges are, I I the way I work with them, think about them is given the infrastructure and system as it is. Mm. How do we have these light touch interventions that leverage how we know decision-making is made right, right. to get really high leverage impact given the amount of investment required? And that is not a system change, no. but it's given the world we have. But there are other people who try to think, incorporate this into the way systems are designed. Well, that's no, not right, of course, right, yeah. right. But I think the nudges are super important, right? Those are actually like the nuances, like the the 
beautiful science behind how you shift, you know, from one one place to another place, or where you gain more insights. Um, so I think it's part of the the whole equation. So you're doing this work not only in family engagement and around, around student success, but also in civic engagement and democracy. Right. Some of your early work was around voting. Right. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, it, so I started as this political pollster, right? And then I got into behavioral science, and I and all of my original work was on how do we translate these insights into voter mobilization? Yep. For example, uh, if you ask, everyone intends to vote. Something like ninety-five percent of people, when you ask them, say, "I intend to vote." Right. And then you look at the voter file, and depending, thirty to fifty percent, thirty to sixty percent actually follow through because we believe it's our civic duty to vote. Yeah. Right. And, and some people are lying to us when they say they intend to vote. Right. But many people truly intend to vote and just fail to follow through. Yeah, yeah. And it so was raining. You, <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't put in my calendar like, the oh, yeah. today was election yeah. day? Shoot. Shoot, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so one of the early interventions we developed was uh, prompting people who say they intend to vote to make a plan. What yeah. time will you vote? How will you get there? Where will you be coming from? And it, that intervention, just adding a battery of questions like that. Yeah. Uh, more than double the impact per contact huh. for get out the vote efforts. Putting a plan into one's mind. Well, because it makes you, it does two things. Are you like, programming your brain a little bit there then? Yeah, I mean, that, that is. So that, yeah, so one is the, the uninspired but probably powerful version of putting it in the calendar. Yeah, yeah. But the psychological version is uh, after I drop the kids off at daycare, then I'm going to go. And right. so it's just a little bit more likely to pop in your brain yeah, yeah, yeah. when you're driving back yeah. from dropping the kids off at daycare. Oh yeah. I said yeah. I was going to vote now. Yeah. So they, they, they call it the, the performance environment, yeah. which is the moment when you can enact the behavior. Yeah. When you think through that, I want to link the behavior with the performance environment. Yeah. It becomes a little bit more likely to become accessible in your mind at the time when it can be enacted. That's interesting. That, so that's significant. Just asking that question over the phone. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And I mean, and we, we see this now across a lot of domains that, I mean, I, I was borrowing from basic psychology that uh, when you prompt people to make these plans, they're more likely, whether it's to eat, eat a vegetable at dinner tonight, right. they're more likely to, it's, if the problem is, is forgetting, Yeah, this helps with overcoming forgetting. Right. If it's a self-control problem, it's a different problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then talk about, I was watching your TEDx talk and you talking about moving individuals from intention to action. And so making a plan is kind of one of three things that you talked about that really can move a person from intentionality to action. The, uh, the other two were leveraging positive peer pressure and reinforcing identity. Can you talk a little bit about what one, each one of those things means? Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the peer pressure there, there are a lot of versions of how peer pressure is used in voting. Uh -huh. uh, the simplest is changing people's beliefs about just w how many people are going to vote. Yeah. And so if you convince people that turnout is going to be high, mm. they become more likely to vote than if you convince them turnout's going to be low. What's interesting about that is- Because they want to vote alongside with- Yeah, just if other people are doing it, doing it tells it. you maybe yeah, this yeah, is the yeah. right thing to do. It tells you maybe this is something people will be talking about. It tells you, yeah. you know, maybe you'll encounter people. And, and people know the lines will be longer when turnout's going to be high, but they're still more motivated. Huh. Uh, there are all sorts of other ways that peer pressure has been used to increase turnout. Mm. Uh, the most offensive but powerful- uh, and and for for listeners, that's where everyone's eyes go up like, yeah. <laughs> with that with that teaser. Uh, is sending people a mailing saying, 
here's a list of all of your neighbors who voted in the last election. We've sent this to your neighbors now, and we'll send an update after the election so everyone knows who voted and who didn't. We hope you'll be on the file. <laughs> You've done this, right? You did this experiment. Well, I, people really hate it. And yeah. so, and one of the things I, yeah. one of the other lines of research I've done is on how people dodge questions. So the, uh, yeah, people don't like yeah. that. <laughs> that yeah. Uh, <laughs> And it, uh, and so, but that is about five to 10 times more effective than anything else anyone has ever uncovered to increase turnout. Huh. And it's public record, just so right. it's right. public you record. You can look up anyone, whether or not anyone has voted. Not who you vote for, but right. if you voted. Right. Um, so, so that is, and, and people get really, I think, understandably hmm. irritated by that. Uh, we, we, that similar, should be an app. Uh, there, the, every year there's like playing around with whether, because the Secretary of State controls the voter file. Okay. Uh, and the Secretary of State makes it more or less accessible. And mm -hmm. because everyone hates it, mm -hmm. uh, I think that in most states they make it hard to do this. But yes. Huh. Um, so so that's that's one. It's incredibly powerful. And you see it across a lot of domains. Like right. I work with a lot of law enforcement and people in the military where uh, they're trying to get performance groups to mm -hmm. increase their performance, then, mm -hmm. like especially the laggards. Yeah. And what in that culture, in that environment, right? Sure. It's totally, it's like not, it's not a cultural, it's not countercultural. So like it doesn't engender the backlash that in our civic life it does. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's totally normal. I, uh, can I, can I describe my favorite education study? And actually my favorite study of the last few years yeah. is on this topic. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's by this team in Chicago where imagine there is there, you have AP classes where it's cool to study okay. and people like to signal how much they study. Yeah. And then imagine another class we'll, we'll, that where it's not cool. We'll call it like the more, the rudimentary class. Yeah. Um, and what they do is for all these students, they're going to offer free SAT tutoring on the weekend. Okay. And for half of the classrooms of the AP class, they say that if you sign up, we're going to put your name on the wall. Uh, and the other half of classes that are AP, they don't put it on the wall. And in the class where, and in the, for the AP kids who it's cool to study, yeah. do you think making it public increases or decreases sign up? Uh, I think it increases. Yeah, it increases it a lot. Right. It goes from like 60% to like 95%. Right. Now for the more rudimentary, the more basic, the, the standard class where it is in the class culture, not all classes are like this, but in these schools, yeah. it's not cool to study. Yeah. When you make it, they do the same thing. Half the classrooms, they say, we'll put it on the wall if you sign up. Right. The other half, they won't. Do you think putting it on the wall in a class where it's not cool to study, that you're signing up for an extra SAT studying session on Saturday, do you think that will increase or decrease sign up? Decrease. Right. And yeah. it does really powerfully Because you're motivated to do to not. So, yeah, you, right. you, you, and so when you're being watched, you're more likely to do what the audience thinks you're supposed to be doing. Right, right. Uh, but, but it depends what the audience is. Right. So the same effect it goes It depends in on what the incentives are. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yes, what the, the audience creates the incentive. Right. And different audiences create different incentives. Oh, so you have to be really thoughtful. Yeah. About how the, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. So, and, and then well, help me understand the reinforcing identity piece of it. So you have to see yourself, like so you, because I see myself as someone who's in this group of kids where it's not cool to study. Mm -hmm. I, that's how I identify. And therefore, if you, if you try to motivate me to do something, I'm going to default to the thing that makes me look like 
the folks who I identify with. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So basically we, uh, we carry with us lots of different identities. Yeah. Uh, and each identity has a set of behaviors that are consistent with it. Right. So it depends on who the audience is. Or who I think of my, which I, yeah. So like, you know, I like to talk about, I'm a Philadelphia Eagles fan. Uh, I grew up in Philly. And so in this quiet room, no one is jeering me, but (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, do you get attacked a lot? But I didn't didn't want to harass you. It's hard for my children. (laughs) The, um, so, you know, when I'm a Philadelphia Eagles fan and I think of myself that way, I carry a different set of behavioral tendencies that are generally not as nice as when I think of myself as an an education advocate. Sure. Uh, And so making one identity more or less salient changes the tendency to to enact those behaviors. And so in the voting domain, thinking of myself as the kind of person who votes makes me more likely to vote than thinking of myself as someone who could vote but doesn't really care. That's so interesting. And you can change that. And in education, one of the original studies in this um, they, they randomly assigned third grade classrooms to get, uh, to, to get reinforced every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for being the clean classroom, the classroom that doesn't litter. Thank right. you for, for being the kinds of kids who don't litter. Yeah. I'm so grateful to, to be teaching right. such clean classroom kids. Right. And the other condition, they every day reinforce, please throw it away. Please don't litter. Please don't litter. Yeah. And so in the other, in that condition, it's like, and I'm imploring you to please not litter. Right. In the other condition, I'm saying, I'm just instilling in you, this is the kind of person you are. I am a part of the crew that does not litter. Yeah. And it yeah. turns out that yeah. reinforcing, this is the kind of person you are, not a behavior I hope you right. do, makes people more likely in that case to not litter. I did not know that, but I've been using that strategy with my kids since they were tiny. Uh-huh. I always say things about how um, our family <laughs> does not do that or does not say that or does not react that way. Yeah. In order. Yeah. I I'm didn't so know. glad I didn't know I was using nudges there. Yeah. But, yeah. I'm so glad I, I have the kind of kids who are really nice to their parents. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, what's interesting to me though, when I was listening to that, um, you know, there's this other side of me that, uh, you know, listens a lot to healers and mindfulness gurus and, you know, these sorts of folks talk a lot, talk a lot about, um, manifestation and how any individual can manifest, you know, the life that they want to live. But, but if you break it down, it's it's the same rules. It's it's really, you know, about kind of knowing what it is, you know, it, seeing yourself in it, seeing yourself within a group of individuals who play out the way that you want it to play out. And so I almost think that this is not only something that outsiders can use to drive behavior of others, but that you also could kind of use these same three strategies to change your own behavior. Sure. So uh, the most obvious is plan making, for example, yeah. which is the least inspired, but the most obvious. Right. If you intend to do something. But especially if you're saying how you're it, do it like out yeah. loud, right? Like it's almost like you've, you've wired your brain a little bit, like you programmed it to say, okay, if I drop off the kids, then I head to the polls. Right. Right. Like you just put that if then statement into your brain. If you're sophisticated like that about how you are. Yeah. But I do want to, I, w- I want to talk about absenteeism because um, it's a really important part of school right now in terms of how superintendents are incentivized and how principals are incentivized. And I don't know if it's the right thing or the wrong thing. I, I 
here in Boston Public Schools, we're suffering from more absenteeism uh, in our district. And, and it's kind of bubbled up to the top in terms of things that are discussed at school committee um, and amongst uh, senior administrators. You've done a lot of work on absenteeism. Can it be controlled? How, you know, why is it a big problem? Like, why is this one of the things that we incentivize um, principals and superintendents to shift? And can it be shifted? Can we can we help kids stay present in school? Uh, so, since every student succeeds act, yeah, forty out of fifty states have added reducing absenteeism to one of the state measures of how they evaluate districts. Okay. Uh, and during this time, there's been this mounting evidence that absenteeism seems to causally relate to student success. The missing school appears to be an impact on learning at school. Which would make sense. Yes. Yes. Um, and so I started working on it about eight or nine years ago. Yeah. And the first intervention that we developed was modeled after the energy uh, after interventions in the energy space, which I think you probably receive, a lot yes. of people receive these right. mailings comparing your energy use to your neighbors. Right. For the reasons we were talking about, when you realize that you're out of the norm, yeah. uh, it turns out that those mailers in energy use are by far the most effective way to reduce energy use anyone has ever uncovered. If I don't feel like I'm operating like my neighbors, then I will shift behavior. Exactly. Yep. It goes both ways. If Same thing with voting. Same thing with voting, yep. same thing with littering, same thing with recycling, same thing with... Uh, doctors prescribing opioids and like there's just research in, across every domain that, right. that's saying that most people do this and you do more or less of it moves you towards what most people do. Hmm. Um, so we started doing this intervention, this mail-based intervention in Philadelphia yeah. uh, district-wide where we randomly assigned families to get nothing, which means just whatever the normal message is. And then the other was getting a program of mailings like these O-Power, these energy use ones. Yeah. And what we found was that it reduced chronic absenteeism about 10 to 15%. Uh, which is a big deal. Which is a huge deal. It's, yeah. not, it's not the solution, yep. but it is fast forwarding. It turns out it's the most effective solution because we don't really, there aren't really other things that we know work. It's the most cost effective too, right? Because what are the other ways to reduce absenteeism? You have to send people out yeah, so men mentors and, and social workers and yeah. things like that yeah. uh, end up reducing absenteeism by the best estimates we have uh, by a, by not by about the same effect, but at a cost about a hundred times more. Um, and so we then replicated it in Chicago public schools. Yep, uh, we replicated it in Philadelphia another year. Uh, we replicated it across a bunch of suburban districts, ten yep. districts. And so to date, it is by uh, it is the most replicated, robust education intervention that has ever been studied because it is, it's so easy to study because it, because it's so easy to hold a control group out. We've now had right. 12 replications, right. se some several to seven to 12 replications. This has also been turned into in class today. Yeah. Right. Which yeah. is a for-profit company. Sure. So, so after, which, which I'm an investor in just as a sidebar, because, full disclosure, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But, 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 but invested because it's, because it's, it's awesome scaling. So effective, the, the yeah. The most effective way to reduce absenteeism. Yeah. How do you think about, though, your work being turned into a for-profit business? So the origin of it, so to finish, just so to, you and I have this common knowledge on this, that yeah. uh, we end up start, we end up replicating in a bunch of districts. Yeah. Those districts 
almost all of them ask me in my capacity as a Harvard professor to continue to implement it no longer as research in their labs, in their districts. Okay. And I ask Harvard if I can start a little nonprofit in my lab that will do it. Harvard says no, because it's not research anymore. Right. So we try to start a nonprofit uh, where we, we want to implement it on behalf of these districts. And we can, and we kind of do that, but it sort of putters along because we don't have any money to hire people and we, and we don't, and we don't have any like infrastructure. Uh, and so after a little, after a couple years of that, where we help these districts implement it themselves, uh, we start what's now called everyday labs. Right. Uh, and, and with it, we bring in, uh, and like an amazing leader, this woman, Emily Baylord, who then builds this organization. And it goes from just two years ago, uh, serving maybe three districts, maybe uh, to this year, it, you know, it'll be 50 to 100 districts and serve. It'll reduce absenteeism by almost a million days from the most, always from the most at-risk kids in these districts. Sure. And most of the large, I don't most, um, a plurality a large fraction of the largest districts in the country right. and a lot big, the biggest 20 tend to implement are, are starting to implement it. Uh, I just want to underscore one thing that is my favorite Amazing. part. My favorite part about this is that, uh, and when I talk with superintendents, I always raise this. I, I you know, now I'm not wearing my Harvard hat. I'm, I'm wearing this everyday labs hat. Uh, the organization, because it implements it this year sent, I think 4 million of these reports yeah. and it runs constant AB testing. Yeah. So the intervention is now 50% to 100% more effective than it was two years ago. Right. And so it's it's getting even more effective. There's now 10,000 versions of the letter with different timing, yeah. different content, different languages, whatever. It, it's it, still a physical letter too. Yeah, because it turns out that the digital communications are just not that effective hmm. because it the digital, if you're calling for an immediate action, your kid didn't turn in their homework, mm-hmm. digital is great. Mm-hmm. But with absenteeism, a kid who has a problem misses a day every two weeks and we don't know what day that is. And even if we did know what day it was, we don't know when the decision is made. Right. So what you really need, we call it bridging time. You need some way to bridge time between when the intervention is administered and when the behavior is enacted. Hmm. And uh, what these hard copies end up being is they become these, these physical artifacts. We call hmm. social artifacts that, that majority of families report putting on the fridge or putting on the kitchen table. Right. Uh, but but I but when I talk with superintendents, huh. I say like one you should do this, but two and and increasingly like because it just keeps replicating, getting more effective, uh, and and it's it's way it's more effective and cheaper for districts to work with a company that specializes in it than for them to try and do it themselves, which yeah. is what like why all the big districts are working on. Uh, but but I, I always underscore this is what your vendor should look like, like they should be getting better because they work with you. Sure. They should be evaluating themselves constantly. Like in LA, we recently, every year, we have to report to the school board. We hold right. a control group out. Right. This is how many days we generate right. and this is how much we reduce chronic absenteeism. Right. Uh, and it's basically not the norm for anything in education no. to have this level of evaluation, let alone like improvement because it's working with you. Right. And I like, I, I like to underscore, like that is what this industry should look like. Yes. And it, because there's no other... It's not operating in the same dynamic way that other industries have to be at the top of their game or they'll just be eaten alive by a new competitor. Maybe, yeah, maybe that's right. But but like it could come from the demand side though. It could. Like where... where it could. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's interesting though. It's better to have a competitor though. I think to change behavior in a company. In, unless in, unless you can charge more. In an, Well, in an industry where there's, comp- where there's yeah. competition, like right. there's... Uh, 
but the, but but of one, course one could imagine superintendents in school districts being actually informed about what evidence is 100% and then they start to hold their their vendors accountable for this which is just not something that happens no it's true it's very true so so you do all of this work with parents and students families and students in school districts and do you find because you also do work in politics and do you find that there are types of people or types of students who perform certain ways that end up more civically engaged like, do you see any kind of connections between you, your work is very multifaceted? Yeah, I uh, I think I think of those programs. I try to think of those programs as distinct, even yeah. though it's hard to talk about education without it becoming a political yeah, discussion. Right. Um, I I will I will answer your question with the proposal that districts should do from a voting standpoint. Uh, districts districts should automatically register their 18 year old students. Oh, that's uh, brilliant. They don't currently, huh. uh, they have the data for it yeah. and it would be pretty easy to do. And what's also great is that you could see what the net effect is uh, to see if it's worth it. So in the political space, I don't think I'm huh. giving away any secrets. Uh, the Among the most effective ways to get net votes has yeah. been to send people on their birthday uh, automatic voter registration, a completed voter registration form saying, happy birthday, sign this and mail it in and you're registered to vote. And you can see that relative to a control group, that increases voter registration. Relative to a control group downstream, yeah. it, it really cost effectively increases voting. No kidding. And the school district could just as easily do this. It has better data and it may be an even more credible messenger yeah. for for this. And and the political interest, like the like the school, school district, yeah. Uh, yeah. it would build uh, a stronger constituency for alums of the school district by having more voters. That's, more that's extraordinary. Because are you worried about what is happening to democracy? I, I was as you're, as I was thinking about your work, I was thinking about all of you know. There's a Forbes article from a couple of years ago that was called "Are Our, Our, Millenn Our Millennials Giving Up on Democracy?" and um, they quoted that. Only about 30% of Americans born in the 1980s or after think it's essential to live in a democracy. Um, and it sounds like uh, the, the, the largest share of young people who, um, or sorry, they're the, this share of young people uh, who consider democracy bad or very bad way to run the United States is growing, um, which I think was in a world value study survey. And so, so there's all of this research that's showing that the younger you are in America, the less you believe in democracy. Do you, do you think that it, I, it started making me think about your work and I'm wondering if millennials, given how pervasive technology in their, is in their lives and how often their people are trying to influence them, is it just that they are frustrated that the gig is up. They know that they're trying to be influenced from every sector. And so they don't actually feel like they have independent choice any longer. I just fluoridize overwhelm you. Yeah. Do you, uh, how about, how about we, you give me a hard question? <laughs> uh, well, it just, it just seems to me that they, they may be on to, you know, this notion that behavioral science is actually a science and that they don't want anything, have anything to do with it. I do want to just challenge the premise. I think one of the premises of your question is that somehow feeling that people are trying to encourage some behaviors yeah. 
uh, is somehow undermining of people's faith in democracy. I, it's just not obvious that those have to be connected. Yeah. I, I would, I would say, yeah, your, your first question was, am I worried? Extraordinarily yeah. yes. worried. Yes. Uh, to, and that's that, that you just gave yeah. is scary enough. There's a, there's another one that has just been the secular decline in voting. Mm -hmm. So anyone who follows it knows that each election cycle tends to be slightly lower voting than the previous. Okay. And there used to be a belief that people were becoming less likely to vote. But yeah. what, what it, the pattern seems to be that current 80 year olds, when they were 18, voted at the rate they vote at now. Yeah. Current 60 year olds voted at a lower rate when they were 18 and they still voted the same rate as when they were 18. Basically when you graduate into the electorate, you mm. vote at a certain rate as a population and you stay at that rate. One thing that I think is, is interesting is like you said, 80% think democracy is not the best form yeah. to govern. It's also easy to attack something without knowing what the, what the strengths and weaknesses of any alternative are. Yes. Uh, and so I don't, there is something interesting that, that, Young people, I can't believe I'm going to say a phrase, a sentence that includes the young people the young, today. The young ones. Um, no, but but uh, the younger generations uh, have grown up in a time with without uh, without large national sacrifice, with large escalation for war that we've been at the longest war we've been involved in the longest war right. in American history, um, and they also have been around in a time when democracy completely won. Yes. And and there is this vast expansion of democracy over the last 40 years, such that there are very few governments mm. that are not nominally a democracy. Mm. Uh, and so the, I think that the, the, the alternative, nobody really, I don't think, I don't think anyone can even be clear when they're saying democracy is not the best system, what they think the alternative is. We talked about this a little bit before we started, but I, I was, I read your paper about the poison parasite defense. I love that one. Thank you. It's so good. I love it. It's we'll, we'll link to it in our blog. But can you talk, uh, first of all, how did you decide to do that? It's such a brilliant thing to take a look at. Maybe describe what you looked at and what the results of it were. I've listened to a bunch of the episodes of this podcast. Uh, I think that we are going. <laughs> and nothing we, is more we, compelling. We are going. No, 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 yes. Yeah, I, I couldn't put it down. That's why I'm so, I'm slurring my words right now, just through the night. You know, I, episode 140. Was was the best <laughs> for people who are no I uh, but I don't think any of them are as as um most people are focused but I guess that's yeah. how my <laughs> that's how my my work and mine work. Um, you said there'd be nothing to talk about. You have no idea how many different things you, you do that are interesting. Oh, good, thank you. Yeah. Uh, so I love this project. I'm gonna I'm gonna give the the brief uh, story. Bob Cialdini, guy wrote a book called uh, called Influence. Robert Cialdini. It is other than Nudge the single book that I recommend the most. Oh, okay. Uh, I read it in social psychology class, uh, in my college, in college. I read it in social psychology huh. in college. Okay. And, uh, and it was one of the reasons I became a behavioral scientist. And I got to know Bob over the last 10 years. He has since retired from Arizona State. Uh, and and it, it, it moved me a ton when Bob called me up and asked if I would work on this project with him. Wow. Uh, because he and I had talked about it at conferences a lot because it's such a clever idea and it was his idea. And I would always ask him, where's the paper? Where's the paper? Yeah. And, uh, and then he called me up and, and asked, and I was like really moved because this guy is, is why I became a behavioral scientist. The idea is 
Uh, if you can imagine a world like this where one candidate lies and misleads mm. and has a much louder voice than his or her opponent, you can imagine an, an environment where there's uh, a really loud voice that is prone to deception. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really hard for an opponent to counter the deception, especially when he or she doesn't have uh, an equal voice. Right. So using the, it, it's very similar to that plan-making thing that we were talking about, yeah. where uh, associative memory, if you associate uh, an idea or a phrase with another idea or a phrase, whenever you encounter the original idea or phrase, the things you associate to it will come to mind also. It's so interesting that that's how your brain works. Because so, so explain how this is. So you, you show an ad, and, well, yeah. right? And the ad, and then you show an ad with over exactly the same ad, but with overlays that tell the truth about what that ad actually said. Uh, we have a yes. I think it makes the most sense with the the to describe during the Super Bowl. There was an ad by TurboTax. Okay where everybody is tax people and the people do the crazy dance with their knees. You may, you, I don't know if anyone has seen this. Um, and, and one, it turns that if you, if we show you that ad and then, and, and then immediately afterwards we show that same ad running and mm. we overlay text on it saying TurboTax says they want to make tax filing easy, yet they've spent $10 million lobbying Congress to prevent automatic tax filing because it would threaten their business. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're hypocrites. Then days later, uh, they see just the original ad. Right. And then we asked them, do they like TurboTax? When we went, what came to mind when they saw the ad was these people are hypocrites because yeah. we associated it with, them, with, uh, with the ad. And so we've done the same thing Imagine, we did not run the study, but imagine when Hillary, when um, having been a political consultant, they always say, don't repeat your opponent's ad, your, your opponent's message. Yeah. Uh, and so Donald Trump used to refer to Hillary Clinton as crooked Hillary all the time. She mm. never repeated it. Uh, and there's no way to like undermine it other than to respond to it. And if you respond to it, you repeat it. So what she might've done based on the strategy is say, every time you hear Donald Trump say crooked Hillary, realize that this guy cheats on his taxes. Yeah. Hear crooked uh, Hillary, associate that with cheats on his taxes. Right. Crooked Hillary cheats on his taxes. So then every time he says that phrase, it, it, it parasitically, through associative memory, it, para, it right. brings it up its poison. And, yeah, and that's your, new, that's, that's your new message. That's the poison parasite. So we it like, really works. It's super powerful. Yeah. And so it, um, it's extraordinary. Yeah. And it's been, and I having been at worked in politics now for almost 20 years, it's really hard to counter an attack. Yeah. Uh, and this is something that candidates are always wrestling with. And yeah. one of the problems is because you can't undo an association. Right. But what you can do is you can associate new things to it. So interesting. So has anyone, this is a pretty new paper, right? Yeah. So is, is anyone in politics dialing you up yet saying, I mean, I, I, the paper's on our website. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I think it's very, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out then in the real world. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I'm going to predict that you will, that you will see, I mean, not, not because I have, I mean, we don't even know who the nominee will be on the democratic side, but I'm right. going to predict that it's going to be used by the nominee because people really like it. And it's such a desperate problem. It's extraordinary. Uh, and what we, what we think happens, it's even more effective when, what it's pointing out is deception and hypocrisy. 
Yeah. It's because it's people not, really don't like that. Yeah. And, and so it's particularly memorable when you, right. when you associate a stimuli right. or a stimulus with it's, it's like the, something that undermines it and shows that it's hypocritical. Yeah. Then it makes it even more likely to carry with it. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. All right. Well, I think our time might be up that I really appreciate you coming in today. This has been a very interesting conversation to say the least. Thank you. It was really fun. Thanks, Jill. Thank you for joining my conversation with Todd Rogers. I can't decide if we should be hopeful or worried that the art of influence is becoming more and more a science. But I do know that knowledge is power and that we are lucky to have individuals like Todd shaping this new field for us. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. 